They are stereotypical. We, we failed to mention basketball altogether. It's kind of funny. I really was not a sports fan when I lived in Kentucky. Well, you don't want to get Kevin and I started on sports because uh, that would be a whole other podcast. Be, yeah. Sports fans of the LSA. Welcome yeah. to the LSA Red Wings po- podcast. <laughs> Hosted by Kevin and Melissa. <laughs> we'll spend the next three hours expounding upon how great the Red Wings are. Hello, and welcome to the third installment of the 2017 Linguistic Institute podcast. My name is Kevin McGowan. Today we'll be talking to Ashley Ferris Trimble of Simon Fraser University and Melissa Bays Burke of the University of Oregon, two of the three instructors of the course, The Time Course of Bilingual Phonologies. We'll talk about the course, we'll talk about phonology in general, and we'll talk a little bit about Kentucky. Thank you very much for talking to me. This is very exciting. Well, thanks for having us. I'm excited to be talking to you, too. Excellent. So who are we talking to here? So I'm Ashley Ferris Trimble. I'm an assistant professor of linguistics at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Um, But I'm actually originally from Kentucky, so I'm super excited to be coming back home for the LSA Institute next summer. I'm Melissa Bays-Burke. I um, am an assistant professor at the University of Oregon, I have absolutely no connection to Kentucky, but I am excited (laughs) to come to Kentucky next summer. (laughs) Terrific. (laughs) We're excited to have you. The the course you're teaching at the Institute is, you're co-teaching this with Anne-Michelle Tessier, is that right? Yes. And the course is the Time Course of Bilingual Phonologies? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. What's what's that mean? What's entailed in that? If I'm a student coming to the Institute, what what should I expect to learn in a course about uh, the Time Course of Bilingual Phonologies? I think we wanted to to do two things in this course. We wanted to combine the expertise of three people who actually, in the end, study somewhat different things. Mm -hmm. So we wanted all of our expertise to be under one umbrella, and this sort of fit that. But we also wanted... For our students to be thinking about bilingual phonologies, not just from one particular aspect. And so when we decided to think about the time course, we were really thinking about two different types of time courses. So we're going to have some discussion of both childhood bilingualism and adult bilingualism. So you're thinking sort of a long-term time course there. And then also discussion of how bilinguals process speech. So now we're thinking short-term time course of processing. So we're thinking time course, you know, from from multiple angles here, but covering lots of different aspects of bilingualism. Cover meaning both uh, lifespan and processing. Right, exactly. Yeah. As linguists, we spend so much time thinking about language, but really the focus on bilingualism, which is the norm in the bulk of the world, hmm. is a relatively new focus for us. And so it's exciting for me to start to think about things not as being exceptional, but to start to think about when we're saying the time course of phonological processing or phonological acquisition, what that means in a bilingual setting, because we don't actually know that much about it at this point. Right. So there's been this idea that the, that the ideal object of study was this monolingual speaker, but actually in the world, that's, that's quite rare. Right. And this really, it, it sort of jumped to the forefront for me when I moved. So I did my graduate work in Indiana and my postdoc in Iowa. And then I moved to Vancouver, where about half the population, I think, is bilingual. And that was not true in the Midwest of the U.S., right? And so dealing with more bilingual students and um, people in the community around me and realizing that there's so much 
so many questions I can't be asking if I'm only looking at native speakers here. Native English speakers. Native, yeah, na- sorry, native English speakers or yeah. monolingual speakers. Yeah, actually. And when you say half the population is bilingual, you mean, do, do you mean uh, many of them are bilingual in French, but also many are bilingual in, say, Mandarin or other languages? Right. In Vancouver, actually, French is not as common as in other parts of Canada, but we have many, many, many speakers who are bilingual in English and Mandarin or Cantonese or Punjabi or Korean or a whole variety of other languages in Vancouver. I see. So you arrive in Vancouver and you realize if I want to continue doing the kind of work I do, and the kind of work you do is is laboratory phonology, is that a fair? Yeah, is it, is that a yeah. Fair phonological processing. Phonological processing. And you realize if I want to continue doing the kind of work I do, you really have to start looking at uh, bilingual speakers. Exactly. And, and Melissa, is, that, is, that a, is there a similar story for you? or? Well, I've sort of always been interested in non-native speech because, um, you know, I have kind of an identity crisis of what to call myself, but I come from a more uh, phonetic-y sort of background than necessarily formal phonology. And so I've always been really interested in non-native speech because the phonetics of non-native speech are really fascinating and how people produce and perceive non-native speech has also been uh, something I've been really interested in. And so um, I've always been interested in the non-native perspective, but I think the sort of real world application of all of this has just become more and more clear to me as I've continued to work in the field. And many of my colleagues are in fact bilingual in many languages. Mm -hmm. I am not, I'm one of the kind of monolingual uh, linguists running around. But when we're talking about how people process speech and we talk about it from a monolingual perspective, we're missing out on a really rich representation of what people in the real world are actually doing. When you talk about bilingualism, when we talk about people being bilingual, do you think that's on a continuum with bi-dialectalism, or do you think they're quite separate creatures? Yeah, I think there is a continuum, and I think that's something that gets kind of ignored a lot, and it's um, a little bit hard to talk about you know, I think in general, we have a kind of aversion to talking about things that are continuous rather th- than things that are easy to categorize. Mm. And so um, one big problem with a lot of work in this area is what makes somebody a bilingual? When do you stop being a non-native speaker and start being a bilingual? And then also, what is the sort of um, distinction we want to make between people being bilingual and being bidialectal? And do we really want to make that sort of distinction? And I think the answer probably in an ideal world is no, but, you know, we have to make these sorts of divisions to run interesting experiments, for example. Sure, I I agree. Well, it's, I mean, I think the answer is probably no, but it's an empirical question, right? Uh, Yeah. And, and, but, but you lead to all of these, it leads to all of these same sorts of questions about childhood acquisition and about um, production and perception in both dialects versus production and perception in both languages. Uh, Right. And I I think that's, I think that's, uh, I just think that's fascinating. So I, I, <laughs> I'm being self-indulgent here and asking you about this. Uh, it's, it's something I think about a lot, uh, which is how, how can we take the theories um, that have been de- so developed and, and well-tested in bilingual acquisition and, and bilingual perception and you know, cross-linguistic perception and apply those to intra-linguistic, if you will, intra-language dialectal uh, perception and acquisition. Right. I think that's a really important question and something that is only starting to be asked now. I think people are just now starting to think about things like the relationship between the two languages you speak and between the two dialects you speak and, you know, how much overlap there is at various levels of linguistic representation. 
Um, and whether that overlap helps you or hurts you, I mean, there's so many fascinating questions, which is another reason why I think this class is really exciting because there's so many um, really open questions in the area that students can ask. I agree that it's an interesting question. And I, and I was, it was only brought to my attention when I was talking about the perceptual assimilation model and talking about two accents of the same language. Right. And a, a reviewer pointed out to me that that was maybe a, an inappropriate leap for me to be making with, without justifying it. But you touched, I think I think it was Ashley who, who touched on this earlier, and I, I want to follow up on it. This course is a little bit unique at the Institute in that it has three co-instructors. There, there are a couple of instances like that. And you all have quite different backgrounds. So Anne-Michelle, who couldn't be with us, is she's trained in very formal phonology. She does a lot of work with acquisitions. She's literally mm-hmm. written the book on <laughs> theories of yes. child phonological acquisitions. Acquisition. Right. Melissa, what's what's your what's your work? Well, you said it's more phonetic-y. Yeah, I I have a hard time identifying as any one particular thing. I don't like to be put in a little box, but uh, I do think my work tends to be a little bit more phonetics oriented. It it's definitely not formal phonology, so I'm kind of on a different uh, end of the continuum from Anne Michelle in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have done a lot of work on um, non-native speech perception and production and the sort of interface between the two. And I spend a lot of time, for instance, measuring voice onset time, which I think makes me a little bit more of a phonetician than a phonologist. But uh, I'm willing to kind of go in either either of those boxes. Is that is that one of the is that one of the features? Yes, a feature of phonetician <laughs> is measuring a lot of VOT. Yeah, I, I, I guess I could check that box as well. Yeah. Uh, Ashley, <laughs> you've sort of straddled both worlds, right? Uh, formal phonology and more experimental work? Yeah, I think I'm a little bit in between. So my my earlier work during my grad career was was all formal phonology, Um, but I also worked in a lab that studied uh, phonological acquisition in children with phonological disorders, and that made me more interested in experimental work and broadening my horizons a bit. So uh, I've done quite a bit of work with people uh, from clinical populations, so individuals with cochlear implants or autism, um, and understanding how their phonologies work. And now what I'm focusing most heavily on is trying to answer some of those persistent phonological questions um, in experimental ways by understanding how people process things phonologically. So for example, I'm interested in um, opacity effects, which we typically think of as a very formal phonological set of effects. Mm-hmm. But I'm interested in looking at how people process opaque stimuli to understand their representations of those stimuli and whether opacity is, is something that's real outside of a textbook. And how do you study that, that processing? Uh, I use eye tracking. So oh, okay. I, yeah, so I'm mostly interested in the time course, the short-term time course of people processing individual words. That's what I'm focusing on, at least at the moment. In a visual world paradigm or? Yeah, yep. I use a visual world paradigm. And for example, in one of my experiments right now, I'm looking at Canadian English, which has a set of opaque processes involving raising and flapping. So mm-hmm. I get uh, native speakers of Canadian English to come into the lab and they they hear a bunch of words that either have raised or unraised vowels and may or may not have opaque outputs. And I'm interested in in the time course of their processing as they're, image, as they're looking at images on the screen. So they might see um, a biker and a Bible and a biter, right? Somebody biting something. Uh-huh. And then they hear biter, which in Canadian English has a raised vowel. I can't make it, but it's something like biter. It sounds like biter. Yes, exactly. Much like that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm interested in when, when they hear that raised vowel, 
Where are they fixating on the screen? Does it matter whether the raised vowel is preceding something transparent like a voiceless consonant or something opaque like a flap? Um, I'm mm. also interested a little bit in production. So I'm interested in does the degree to which a speaker is a Canadian razor affect how they process uh, words that have undergone Canadian raising? Mm-hmm. Um, all because fundamentally what I'm most interested in is how speakers represent words like this. Represent both in, uh, or, or oh, let me, I'm going to make a leap here, represent both in a production and in a perception grammar, or do you see these, those two things as more connected? <laughs> That's a good question. I, current, <laughs> currently, I think of them as connected. So currently, I'm imagining a single lexicon that feeds yeah. into production and is accessed during perception. Um, and I, I think I've got some extremely preliminary evidence that might indicate that that, uh, that model is a good model to be thinking of, at least for the particular question I'm asking. But that's definitely far from settled, I think. Oh, that's so. This is terrific because when I when I think of the the connection between production and perception, one of the one of the primary things that makes me think they must be, uh, I don't I don't have a strong stance on this, it, it, despite the words I'm using, uh, that I, <laughs> that they must be se- separate or at least uh, interestingly and complexly related is 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 the bilingual speaker, right? The 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 idea that I might have two very different uh, lexicons that I sort of feel like I switch between, right? Or e- right. even by dialectally, I feel like I switch between them. So, but you, but you don't see it that way. You see the, them as as much more intimately connected, production and perception. Well, at least in this particular experiment. So, this is an experiment looking at monolingual speakers, and so I, I agree with you that when we start thinking about bilingual speakers, we have to assume that they have two different lexicons at the at the very least one for each language, right? Yeah. Um, that interact, we think those those two lexicons interact in some way, but they must be capable of keeping them separate. And so I think that does raise the question, if bilingual speakers can have two lexicons, one for each language, then maybe monolingual speakers also have two lexicons, one for perception and one for production. And maybe that means that bilingual speakers have four. I don't know. It, wow. it raises a lot of questions, right? But I think that's yeah. exactly why we need to be studying these things in bilingual speakers, because we've spent so much time on monolingual speakers that we haven't really opened ourselves up to all the other possibilities out there. Yeah, as someone who, in fact, wrote a dissertation about the relationship between perception and production, <laughs> um, I I think um, non-native speakers are exactly the place we should be looking at this sort of thing because, you know, in in a native, proficient native speaker of a language, they should be really closely connected, perception and production. Mm. And if you see divergences, that's in some ways a signal of a, a disorder of some sort, yeah. right? Um, but I think if you're looking at non-native speakers or bilingual speakers and you're seeing differences in how things are processed in perception and production, which I think everyone you know, in this kind of discussion right now and everyone probably listening agrees that perception and production do have some very different properties, including the fact that one is done with ears and the other is done with a mouth, <laughs> which are two different you know, parts of the body. Um, I think asking how far into the system those sorts of differences percolate is an interesting one. And my sort of intuition is that it's probably not all the way to the lexicon, but it probably is manifesting in different ways in terms of phonological representations. That's sort of my current stance, but I'm willing to be swayed on that too. This is very exciting. <laughs> given, the, given the course you've described, what is there an ideal student you, you have in mind for this for this class or 
what kind of what kind of preparation should I have, or what kind of questions should I have to to take your time course of bilingual phonologies course? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Thank you. I can imagine a number of different types of students taking the class. I think students who um, have experience with looking at non-native speech or bilinguals will obviously have a kind of direct tie into this sort of um, content we're going to be talking about. And I think it's probably quite rare for any student to have expertise in sort of each of the three sections that Michelle will be teaching, I'll be teaching, and Ashley will be teaching. Um, So I think you'll get something out of it, even if you're already sort of a specialist in one of those areas. But I think it's also true that if you're interested in kind of processing and acquisition in general, this would be a really useful course for you to take to sort of branch out of the, as Kevin was talking about, uh, the ideal speaker being the monolingual native speaker of a language, um, out of that mindset into a mindset where you're looking at more real world problems. And what are the three sections? The, The current plan is bilingualism and first language acquisition, which we'll probably cover for about a week. And and Michelle will focus on that section. Mm-hmm. Bilingualism in adults, uh, which we're imagining will be the second week, that might change. And Melissa will cover that section. And then the third section will be bilingual processing, uh, which I will be focusing on. So that's three of the four weeks. And then the, the current plan is that in the fourth week, students will work on experimental proposals based on what they've learned so far. And maybe now's a good time for me to make another plug for another class. Sure, sure. Um, because you asked what types of students might be most interested in taking our course. And I think one thing students might want to think about is taking courses uh, whose content areas are complementary in some way. And one that I would recommend for that is Melinda Fricky's class. She's going to be teaching a class on code switching. And I think the full title is something like Psycholinguistic and Corpus Approaches to Code Switching. Yeah, that's right. Um, And code switching is intimately tied to bilingualism in a variety of ways. And she's going to be doing some really interesting stuff in her course. And then our current plan is that for the last week of the institute, the two classes will meet together to work on experimental proposals together. So they might get to, a student in our class might get to work with a student in Melinda's class on a proposal. Or if a student is taking both classes, they might be able to combine what they've learned in doing an experimental proposal and we're really hoping to get some proposals that might actually wind up being things that that we want to collaborate with students on long term and maybe run some experiments. I love the experimental proposal as a as an assignment and not just an I mean it's perfect for a 4 week course, right, where uh, where there really isn't time to to develop a and run a full experiment, but just even even in a full semester course, I will often make the final assignment be an experimental proposal. Uh, will you have people sort of fleshing out what the stimuli should be, thinking about th- thinking about the actual design, thinking about the statistical design, or, or are we f- talking about formulating a basic question? What, what kind of approach do you usually use? This might be a, a case where it might wind up depending a little bit on the level of the student. Mm-hmm. So a student who is a little bit more advanced and has maybe had more time to, to spend thinking about the details of experimental design might be able to take this opportunity to really flesh out a, a full a full-fledged experimental proposal. Whereas students who are newer to linguistics or newer to um, aspects of bilingualism or phonological processing or whatever they might want to study, they might still be in the stages of just thinking about what's a good question and, and in general how to answer a good question. 
I'm sort of willing to interact with students at whatever level they're at. Yeah, I agree. I think there will be kind of a range of possibilities. And in an ideal world, the more kind of uh, expanded an idea you have, the better, because then we can start thinking about what stimuli might look like in statistical analysis, which I think are really critical to think about far before you actually start running the experiment, because sometimes you find that this really clever idea you have requires uh, 400 people coming into the lab and, you know, stimuli that don't actually exist in whatever language you're interested yeah, in. And yeah. so, um, you know, thinking about the feasibility is really an important thing. But at the same time, I think it's really worth it for students to kind of think big initially, especially if they don't have a ton of experience and try to think about what the big research question is and how they might go about answering that. It's always disappointing when you draw up your design and you need 42 words and then you go you go search and you find English has 11 of those words. Or... Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And in my first uh, paper that I ever published, um, we have, I think, 12 words that yeah. begin with the voiceless feeler stop in English and um, do have a minimal pair in English and fit in a variety of other circumstances. A voice minimal I pair? Almost a, a voice minimal pair and have... Uh, are a single syllable and below a certain frequency and all of these sorts of things. And I'm pretty sure they're the only 12 words in English yeah. that exist yeah. that fit into those those properties. So, And I've got yeah. one right now where I needed a, a word that had a potential raised vowel and a flap in the middle, and it needed to fit within another set. And the only word that fits is spite, but it has to have a flap, right? So spiting, spiting. Uh-huh. And the participants have to read a sentence and so they're reading the sentence. When he cut off his nose, it was his face he was spiting. And that is not even remotely a reasonable <laughs> sentence. But sometimes you have to make sacrifices and think, if this set gives me some weird results, then I'll cut it out of the data analysis later and, and only analyze the other 11 sets of words. I did a vowel nasalization study a few years ago, <laughs> and uh, we needed CVNT and CVND pairs. Uh, and it turned out we, we taught many, many a Michigan undergraduate the word wend. Uh, <laughs> they would ask us after afterwards, what does, what does wend mean? That's amazing. How do you not know what wend means? It occurs seven times in the Harry Potter books. <laughs> right. Which is our guideline, clearly, well, for what's that, reasonable. That is the corpus I draw on most often. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh yeah, it's, it's always frustrating. And I've actually, there have been studies I couldn't run because it turned out the words didn't exist. Yeah. We talked a lot about the bilingual aspect of this course, and we talked a bit about the time course part of the title. We haven't talked as much about the phonologies, I don't think. From multiple perspectives, I, I'm sort of interested in the, in the presence of the word phonologies in the title. Uh, if I'm a student who has not taken an introductory phonology course, will I likely be underprepared or... Uh, would you recommend that I have taken at least an introductory phonology course or, or where should I, how should I prepare for that? I would, think, I would think a student who has taken introductory phonology will maybe feel more confident coming in, um, maybe understand some of the concepts a little bit more quickly. But I also think, and Melissa, you weigh in on this, I think we're using the word phonologies very loosely here. Oh, okay. uh, so at least my imagining of the course is that we are we are thinking about sound systems, right? So we're thinking about the, the sound systems and the sound, the patterns in those sound systems in speakers who are bilingual. And that might mean formal phonological analysis, like figuring out 
underlying representations and rules that apply, but it also might just mean understanding phonological representations or um, looking for patterns in production, right? This might not be as formal as it could be. What do you think, Melissa? Yeah, I agree. I think uh, Ashley's use of the word sound systems is is perfect because that's sort of the way I've been thinking about it. We're thinking about patterns, we're thinking about sound systems, and we're not thinking um, necessarily about formal phonological analysis of this, although that's definitely a direction you could go mm-hmm. um, with this sort of approach as well. I think, you know, at least my section will be focused a lot on um, this the properties of systems. And I think of that as being phonology, but again, I'm not, uh, I'm not necessarily the person to ask. We would have to get AMT to, to weigh in on that. Yeah. And Michelle, sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. I think she's pretty well known as AMT. And- I think yeah. so too. And if not, we're, we're, we're doing our part right now. So if the focus is on sound systems, uh, is this less about phonology as, as a formal enterprise and more about phonetics, or is it somewhere down the middle? Or, or what's the... So, yeah, so in general, I would say that, that what we used to call phonetics and what we used to call phonology are becoming closer and closer together, and that line between them is getting blurrier and blurrier to the point that those of us who do experimental phonology or laboratory phonology are often engaging in phonological questions, but also things that touch on what I at some point would have called phonetic questions, right? So you have people like Melissa who are doing phonological work and measuring VOT. And you have people mm-hmm. like Anne Michelle who are doing very formal phonological work and still doing it in an experimental setting. So I think that we're not at least in this class, we're not going to be quite as concerned with drawing any really clear lines between what should count as phonology and what should count as phonetics. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, I'm increasingly questioning how much sense it makes to sort of divide things up as we do anyway, given the fact that I think a lot of people in the LSA, a lot of uh, the recent LSA meetings have shown this trend to be uh, increasing are focusing on issues of interface anyway Mm -hmm. right and if we're talking about the interface between two things i think this leads to a question that kevin brought up earlier talking about the difference between bilinguals and being bidialectal right it's the same sort of thing are what's what's the difference between being a phonologist and being a phonetician and is it that one person is more concerned about systems than the other and if that's the case I don't I don't think that that's necessarily true because a lot of the phoneticians I know are really interested in the sort of systems underlying sound uh, sound in languages so I think it's a an interesting question that sort of reflects the state of the field as I see it right now and some of the things I think a lot of linguists are grappling with trying to figure out as I am where you fit in most clearly and whether it makes sense to draw these sorts of lines between these these subfields. Yeah, it, it does seem like it's it's become less clear what a what what a phonologist is, what a what a phonetician is, and 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 what they do that that is different. With the possible exception, maybe of computational phonology, or is that in that that might be less connected to phonetics? You mean? Yeah, yeah, less laboratory related anyway. Yeah, but I I still think that even computational phonologists are drawing from this really rich history of experimental work, which is some of which is coming out of phonetics. So maybe not the specific questions or methods, Mm -hmm. but the idea of, I guess I used to think of phonologists as people who could do their work in libraries with books. 
and phoneticians as people who needed a laboratory and equipment. And I think as maybe as technology has improved and we all have access now to prot and basic microphones and basic recording software, right? That yeah. we're all able to to answer questions in a in a clearer and more precise way maybe than than just by looking at a, a grammar in the library and finding minimal pairs, for example. And so I think computational phonologists, they're doing it from a different perspective, but they're taking advantage of the technology that's available and the ability to to find out what's really happening in real data rather than sort of making broad assumptions based on very limited data sets. Yeah, this also makes me wonder how much of this discussion is actually a conflation of the issue of methods and the questions that we're asking, yeah. right? So I, I think you can imagine... Um, now, much more than even 10 or 15 years ago, a phonologist who uses experiment uh, experiments as their way of asking questions, right? And the rise of LabFawn has sort of seen this um, happen in the past, probably, I don't know how old LabFawn is now, 25 years or so. Yeah. Um, but I, I wonder what that means for the sort of I, state of the theoretical questions, right? So if if phonologists are asking questions with experiments, and that used to be how we defined this divide, how do we define the divide in terms of the questions that are being asked in phonetics and the questions that are being asked in phonology? And I'm not sure there's a good answer to that. Maybe somebody smarter than me has it, but... <laughs> I, I, I somehow doubt that, that anybody has the answer to that question. But I also think, yeah. too, that there's an aspect of, of the interpretation of the answers of those questions... So yeah. I think there was, you know, historically phonology was was more likely, I think, to to have these discrete interpretations, right? Something is one way or the other. It's it's a B or a P. It's it's a phoneme or it's not a phoneme. And phoneticians historically have maybe been a little bit more comfortable with with continuous aspects of data, right? With gradients, and, yeah. Yeah, with gradients. And I think that's something that phonologists have been increasingly as melissa said it's 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 an it's a uh, a question right so it has to do with how we ask our phonological questions and i also think with how we interpret our answers so maybe we're becoming more comfortable with things not being black and white or having some gradients in in the and not just in the data but in the the answers to theoretical questions in the interpret right. yeah in yeah the, the interpretation. interpretation yeah yeah yeah, there's a running joke in my lab when somebody asks me, is it this or that? I say the answer is yes, because it's it's probably both of the things, yeah. right, that are going on. And so I think uh, it's not a super satisfying scientific answer, but it's uh, definitely the case that this kind of gradients and gray area is, is where the action is happening, I think, in both phonetics and phonology right now. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's certainly the case that, that the kind of work one sees done, I, I don't see a lot of uh, I don't see a lot of work anymore that is I, I design this experiment to test whether or not this constraint exists, right? Or whether or not test the, or figure out the ranking of these the relative ranking of these constraints. That kind of experimentation seems to be gone. But I think you're right that the, the core questions being asked are still very phonological. I mean your question, Ashley, about opacity, uh, in 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 Canadian accented speech, there's 
I think to, to, to my ear, listening to that, I was thinking, I was actually thinking there's no sense in which that's not a phonological experiment and there's no right. sense in which that's not a phonetic experiment, you know? Yeah. Right. And I think, too, um, the conference AMP, um, which is uh, the annual meeting on phonology, this is a, a fairly new conference. I think it's going to be in its fourth iteration um, in October. Uh, but I think if you come to a conference like AMP, you might be more likely to see some of the things that you just said there were there was less of these days. Um, experimental approaches to maybe not is this a constraint, but uh, there's a lot of, for example, artificial language learning experiments, um, trying to understand whether something is uh, perhaps innate or maybe not, maybe innate isn't the best word, right? But whether uh, a particular type of constraint is something that we all have, whether our native language has it or not. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that there are experiments being done that are looking at what I think of as as almost more purely phonological questions, things about um, constraints or grammars. Uh, but most of the people doing those types of experiments are also asking questions that, that are a little bit phonetic-y as well. Is part of what we're seeing kind of a, a lull maybe in, in theoretical phonology around work on optimality theory uh, per se, and, and maybe part of a move toward harmonic grammar, or I'm, I'm not particularly versed in what, what's been going on lately in formal phonology. Is harmonic grammar the thing right now, or, or where are we headed there? You know, I guess I've been doing less theoretical work as of late as well, and so I might be a little behind the times, but my experience at conference suggests that there is a little bit less of what I would think of as classic OT, more Mm. harmonic grammar and also more harmonic serialism, which is Uh. um, not so harmonic grammar is a weight based system, right? So it involves numbers. Uh, Harmonic serialism uh, does not necessarily have that aspect. So it's a little bit more like classic OT in some respects, but very, very different in other respects. And ranking rather than weighting. Is that yeah, ranking rather than waiting, but looking at um, candidates in a different sort of way, I guess I would say. So um, all of these systems allow us to to compare potential outputs that may be better or worse for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I think even just just that opened up a lot of doors for phonologists when, cl- when sort of classic OT came around, right? Uh, yeah. But I think in more recent years, I've definitely seen more harmonic grammar and more harmonic serialism and less of this, you know, in the early days of OT, there was just a lot of, this is this brand new theory. Can it be used to explain X phenomenon? And now I think we've said either yes, it can, or no, it turns out it's not so great to explain a few particular phenomena. And we've moved past that to say, you know, what is the underlying content of phonology, right, of a phonological grammar, what types of constraints might exist, um, where do those constraints come from, uh, how do we determine their correct ranking, questions like that. This whole enterprise was useful in identifying sort of what the phenomena are, right? We all, we all agree what the phenomena are that need to be explained. You're, you're, you're investigating opacity now, right? Right. Uh, but now, yeah, now we have different ways of of answering some of the questions that at one point maybe seemed unanswerable, which is kind of exciting, right? Like these things, right? So like, I always wish I could know what my dog is dreaming and that seems like an unanswerable question. Yeah. But maybe someday we will, we will have a way of 
determining that. And that's kind of where phonology is at this point. I think for a long time, there were questions that seemed not unanswerable, but things that maybe we could never be exactly sure what's going on. And now we have new ways of investigating them. And maybe some of those questions can be settled in, in clearer, clearer ways now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that was really good. I think we have, I think we have a, a conversation here that can be, can be a thing. What do you, what, is there anything awesome. you, you is there anything you'd meant to say that that I haven't asked you about or that uh, you'd been thinking you'd you'd want to talk about that we haven't? Either I feel like it might be nice if you could mention in there somewhere that uh, people's impressions of Kentucky are is that people people might be under the impression that Kentucky is not the most exciting place to visit, um, and I would agree that it's it's not you know New York City or Chicago. But it turns out that there are lots of really cool things in Kentucky and Lexington in general. Um, there are lots of really great linguists there doing really cool work. And then there's there are horses and horse parks and there's bourbon and bourbon trails. And the weather is likely to be nice that time of year. And Lexington itself is a great little city. So I'm just putting in a plug in for people visiting Kentucky when they might not have thought that that was a place they really wanted to visit. Kentucky Kentucky is interesting in that people from north of Kentucky have kind of negative attitudes about it and people from south of Kentucky have sort of negative attitudes <laughs> about it and they're competing attitudes they right that it's sort of too northern and too southern and, yep. and uh and and actually you're exactly right there are, there's you haven't lived until you've seen a horse full of bourbon <laughs> and I hope everybody <laughs> at the LSA Institute has a chance to see that <laughs> I, will, I, I won't be including that. Uh, <laughs> I really think you should. I really <laughs> think you should. I agree. Horse yes. full of bourbon yes. is the tagline for the LSU <laughs> yes. Institute yep. Hashtag, hashtag horse full of bourbon. Yep. <laughs> it's about as stereotypical as it's going to get.